Hey everyone, welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie, and I, it's a pleasure to be with you guys here today, and it's also a pleasure to be here with, with Nathan, my husband. How are you today, Nathan? I am wonderful. How are you? Good, good. We are happy to be here today to wrap up our five-part series. I know that feels like it's been a lot, right? Five parts of a series, <laughs> but we are here to wrap it up and talk a little bit more about descent and the sacred nature of descent. The series I am titling, Are We McMormons? I'm taking this from a phrase by the author and theologian, Paul Toscano. And I'm heavily referencing, we are heavily referencing a lot of what he has to say from a book that he, that, that's titled, looking at it right here, The Sanctity of Descent. And really what he is talking about when he references the idea of a McMormon is not intended to be offensive. It's actually more intended to really draw attention to the tendency that sometimes we have to want things quick and easy. We are definitely a microwave, fast food kind of people. We have been trained to be that way in our culture. And the tendency is to do that also with our faith development and with our religion. So when I talk about the idea of being McMormon, being a McMormon, let me slow myself down here. What I'm making reference to is the temptation that we have to be fast food religionists, wanting a lot of our thinking and feeling done by authorities, by people on the outside, by those that can quickly and easily sort of tell us what to do, how to live, how to grow, how to behave, and how ultimately to return back to heaven. Um, if only it were that easy, I would be um, all in favor. <laughs> I just don't think that's how it works. So instead, what Nathan and I are doing in this series is we are really trying to break down the scary concept of descent, why it's holy, why it's sacred, why it matters, and how actually in our deeply thinking and feeling through complex topics that have to do with our faith development, we are ultimately being made over in the image of our divine parents. So today, we're going to hit points number nine and number 10. And then we have a little sort of, I don't know, kind of bonus an old, point. Exactly. I guess you call it a a point number 11. And I, I blame the author on this because he gave us 10 points and then he ended the chapter with, oh, and by the way, there's another point and it's the most important one of all. So you can't not talk about that one, right? So we're going to hit these three. Um, and if you're interested in starting at the very beginning of the series, we hit points one and two, four, four episodes ago, three and four, and on and on. So if you want to go back and hit this whole series, you know, just wherever you are listening, just, you know, pause the podcast and double back and you can start at the beginning. However, having said that, I believe that you can probably just start right here and get plenty out of just listening to this episode standing alone. So, okay, babe. Okay. So today we're going to talk about these three points and two of them tie really closely together. So I'm going to go ahead and present both of them together and then we will go from there. Um, so point number nine on the sanctity of descent reads as such uh, straight out of his book. Descent is holy because it is the foundation of peace. Now, what does he mean by that? Though the principal reason for the elimination of descent in an organization is to avoid discord and disruption, the elimination of descent does not actually promote peace. Instead, the absence of descent is evidence of unspoken turmoil hidden by repression, suppression, and oppression, okay? 
very well said. Mm. Now, the, the point number 10, which goes right along with that, says dissent is holy because it safeguards the community from self-destruction. It says, unless dissent is allowed or permitted in an organization or even encouraged, the organization has no way to test the adequacy of its decisions to meet the problems of the group. So basically what he's saying is dissent suppresses the voice of the group and then creates an environment where the organization has no idea what the group is thinking or feeling. And he goes on to say the ultimate result of that is that the group will fall apart. So, Valerie, what are your thoughts? Well, the thing that actually emerged first and foremost for me, especially as you were reading point number nine, is actually what comes to my mind is uh, a couple that I have spent a lot of time mm. working with as a therapist. And these two I just adore. They are just the most wonderful people. And it's t it took me a little while to understand what was going on in their marriage. And here's the reason why, you guys is because we started working together and I have never encountered in my life a more proper and polite couple. <laughs> These two were so deferential. They were so kind. They were so polite. And I don't think they had a clue what was going on in the lives of the other. And I certainly had no clue because nobody had the courage to talk, mm. to share what was really going on in the marriage. And of course, that took me some clear and, and they were very unhappy, by the way, <laughs> they had come in because the marriage was on its last, you know, it was hanging by a, a, a thread. And what really had emerged and what was emerging and what we ended up continuing to work on. And to this day, we're still working on this a little bit is how safe is it for both parties to really be seen to share their lived experience of what it's like to be in this relationship. And so I think this is a perfect example of what can happen when we live in a relationship, whether it be in a marriage, a family, or a larger system like a church, where what matters more than anything else is peace. And I don't mean peace from the perspective of like real peace, because I think he, uh, Toscano brings this up, is that dissent is actually the foundation of true unity and peace. But what we, I think, sometimes do is we sell ourselves short and we close up and close down and don't actually show up in a way that is congruent with being in true connection with the other party, whether it be ourselves with other people at church or ourselves with our partners. And the reason being is because the consequences are too big to be real, to show up and to actually have a complex relationship, which does involve two messy individuals in a marriage. And of course, if it's a church, a multitude of messy individuals. What are your thoughts on that, Nath? Uh, no, I think you're spot on. And I think that it's, you can look at it in, in a lot of different systems, a family system for sure. Um, I was thinking of it in terms of maybe a government system. Yeah. So we have a system in our country where we have principally two parties, uh, even within those two parties, there's not always full agreement on policies and platforms and points of view. Um, and what we see in Congress frequently is a lot of consternation, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of um, name calling and arguing and back backbiting and, and so forth as people with lots of different points of view come together to try to create government policies. And while on the surface, that looks very, very contentious, 
the fact of the matter is, is that it is the right way to do things. It's necessary. It is necessary. People have to be allowed to express their points of view, even though they're very different. And sometimes we don't always do it cordially or politely, but, but that kind of thing has to happen. Because the opposite is what you get in, say, China or even Russia right now, right. where anybody who dares to say one thing against state-run television or the Communist Party or anything like that, they disappear. Yeah. Okay, They're gone. And that is exactly what we're talking about, is that it is better to have the surface discord of a lot of different opinions, but where everybody knows they can have a voice and they can make a statement that is better than the false tranquility of a communist R Russia, you know, I say Russia's communist, they're, they're communists, let's be honest, they're communists, <laughs> okay, Putin is a dictator. And that is a communist system in, in China, where, where people have their opinions, you haven't suppressed their opinions, you have simply made it where you can't function as a society anymore because they go underground because in some ways they are there's wisdom enough to recognize that if i do voice up and speak up i will disappear or right. people that i love will disappear or there will be such harsh consequences that i have to become invisible yeah so this what this reminds me of actually incidentally is something that one of we have a daughter who goes to a state-run university that i will, will remain you know, not, not for any real reason other than just to be silly, a state-run university that is down the hill from a church-run university. And so she is in a leadership capacity there and is having a wonderful, wonderful experience. One thing that she said she was told in, um, in some of her leadership capacities is that some of her non-Latter-day Saint professors struggle a lot with their Latter-day Saint professors because it's not considered appropriate to have a complex dialogue in some of these departments. Mm. There is a sense that having a complicated opinion or a dissenting view makes everybody too darn uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> and so therefore, in some of these um, departments at the school, at least in her department from my daughter's um, rendering of this story, because her, her, her professors have talked about it, they've said it's a very, very unique and idiosyncratic struggle that they've noticed while working with Latter-day Saints, because there's sometimes a pervading feeling, I don't know if this is implicit or something that maybe we've been explicitly taught, which is that the spirit leaves when there's any dissenting views. Like there's something very, very important about harmony. Hmm even if it's at the cost of coming to points that matter more or that are true. And I mean, think about that. That is, that is highly problematic yeah, because hugely. it's hugely problematic because what you were saying, I'm just kind of, we're hovering around the same idea, which is this idea that in a, a college department, in a government, in a church, in a marriage, in a family, certainly there is an appropriate way to have a dissenting kind of conversation back, you know, name calling, um, crucifying one's character, being cruel. Right. That, that's not that's not what that's we're talking not, about here. That's not appropriate. That's not what we're talking about here. But what we are talking about is sometimes even having a dialogue where people are respectfully and with deep heartfelt feelings that are really speaking to the call of what they feel is true to their soul. Those kinds of dialogues are considered unwelcome they're considered um, dangerous. They're considered 
um, sort of um, inviting the departure of the Spirit of God <laughs> because they're different. And that, you guys, is not what true mature dialogue and what true mature, um, you know, working towards a solution looks like. Yeah. Mm. And, and I might even add on top of that yeah. because I think your points are, are spot on. But one thing I've noticed probably in my own self is that sometimes if people have a, a dissenting opinion than me, I almost take it like a personal attack, right? It's like somehow you having an opinion that's different than mine says something about me as a person yeah. or my character or, or my ability to, to reason through a situation. And so unfortunately it becomes uh, like a personal thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have pounded into my kid's head to, to go along with what you've said that it's not what you say it is the way you say it they you guys they have all said they've agreed our four children and they agree on almost nothing but they've all agreed this will be on his gravestone <laughs> but i think it's it goes to the point which is that in going back to my congress analogy uh, we, we we don't always say things in a respectful or a polite way we don't acknowledge other people's points of view uh, as also being valid and so so there is uh, in the discourse sometimes things that break down from the proper way of having dissent. But at the same time, having dissent or having different points of view is not a personal attack. And it is by far the healthiest way to handle a large organization. Well, and I think if what we're ultimately after is coming to truth, coming to efficiency, coming to that which is better than it was yesterday, going back to the idea of sort of the college department, those kinds of things, and so this is true of family life too, and of church life, we're all broken vessels. We don't necessarily know what we're doing most of the time. And so we're working our way through challenging situations with other people who bring to the table various kinds of experiences, specialties, expertise, ideas. And so to be able to have a, a community where people are welcome to come and say, you know what, I see the way this is going. I have an idea that might make it better. Right. and not have the rest of the committee freak out, get uncomfortable, tell them that you're making us all uncomfortable because the authority figure has already spoken. To have that kind of a climate actually shuts down discourse, it shuts down growth and development, and ultimately it shuts down what we're all, I think, after, which is trying to make the world a better place through whatever the, you know, through the community that we're, we're in. Okay. So let me ask you, um, a devil's advocate question okay in the spirit of um me being the devil <laughs> okay um the argument would be made or could be made you don't know enough to participate in this discussion okay so for instance if i had a problem with the fact that it came out that the lds church has 150 billion dollars in the enzyme pink fund which but it doesn't probably anymore because we're all in a recession but at the time it came out 150 billion dollars in this enzyme peak fund and some of the people who are members of the church managing the fund felt that that was inappropriate use of tithing dollars to, to hold that much money in a fund that was intended to bless the lives of, of the members of not just the church, but also the whole world. And one of the argument is that came out was, well, you don't know enough to tell us how to use that money. Okay. And that's just one of, of many examples that could be used, but you don't have the technical knowledge to tell the people at the top who have all the experience and knowledge how to use that money. So what would you say to that argument? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. To me, I think we all ultimately answer to one and only one entity, and that is to our, our divine parents. And so what we would have to decide if we are giving our money to that organization and we don't feel like it's right, our way of dissenting would actually be to reshift our, well, first of all, to decide on the principle itself. Do we feel that we want to be tithe payers? And if we feel from our soul that that is a true principle that, that rings true to us, we would then have to decide how we want to allocate our tithing money in a way that shows that we believe in the principle, but we dissent from the way that the money is being used. And um, I, I know I'm kind of, let me, let me circle back a little bit and say just a little bit more about the fundamental principle that you just spoke of, which is this. And I think we actually, I think Toscano talks about this, doesn't he? That there is going to be, do you want to read that part? Um, let's see here. So it's it's about how we we may be wrong and okay. we may not have... Yeah, so in his book he touches on it, although he doesn't really answer it. He says, yeah. the majority almost never has the technical knowledge possessed by an expert minority. And the wisdom of the majority is by no means infallible. Okay, so he touches on that. And then he says, that is the point. It is necessary in a community to have kind of both. The technical expertise... Um, but also a multitude who isn't narrow-minded. And so, so I think what it, it boils down to is the, the necessity in every organization for some accountability, some checks and balances, because there are going to be experts at the top of, of any organization. I speak of churches or I speak of a corporation. Um, families tend to, parents tend to know, you know, have more experience than their children because they, you know, surpass them by, you know, by nature of their being a generation older. While at the same time, I think this is where it gets complicated. That does not mean that they always are right. Right. And so we may feel, although we we are just, you know, commoners out here in the Midwest, you know, with no titles or big, you know, authority or responsibilities out here, we may not feel that the way the the tithing dollars are being spent is appropriate under the circumstances. We have the right to feel that way. And we have the right to then choose, you know, inside of the power that we have with our own tithing dollars, how and when and where we will spend that those tithing dollars. And you know, you and I have discussed this. It's our belief that God is perfectly happy with our spending our with our giving our ten percent anywhere that we want that we feel is noble and good and helping the world. Sure. What are you? Did you have another direction you wanted to take that? I, no. I can't quite tell. Well, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and absolutely, it speaks to the last point that we're going to get to, uh, which is our, our own ability to have personal inspiration, which we have not brought up yet. But it's, it's a good lead in for that. I, I do want to say this. I, I want to say that, that it, the, 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 the majority may not have all of the information that the elite experts at the top may have. And I'm, I'm using elite experts in, in quotation marks, believe me. But um, here, here's how one thing that I see, and, I, and I'll use again the church as an example. We've known for a very long time that the youth and the young adults in our church uh, really struggle with the church's views on some of the social issues that are out there. And what has ended up happening is that a large number of the youth and young adults have left the church. They're leaving the church, still leaving the church in, in large numbers, okay? And the way that the authorities have tried to approach this has not worked. 
they have really hit on the symptoms of the problem. We're not going on missions in the numbers that we used to. We're not marrying in the temple in the numbers that we used to. And they have not addressed the underlying problem. Uh, in the last 10 years, the number of eight-year-old baptisms has fallen off a cliff. Uh, child of record baptisms has fallen off of a cliff because the first generation of youth that have left the church, they haven't baptized their children. The, the millennials are still feeling very, very wounded by a lot of the yeah. social issues. And so they have left the They've church. They've left the church. And They're children. not baptizing their, yeah. their eight-year-olds anymore. And now that number is falling rapidly. Rapidly. It's like it's down 50% from its peak, the last numbers I looked at. Okay. And so even though the majority may not have the expertise of the elite minority, mm. the effect, you can see the effect that the that the um, of the of the um, deafness to mm. the cries and the problems is that people are leaving in droves. It's it's they're walking very, out the door. very evident that something is missed. And that's the interesting thing to circle back to point number nine, Nathan is um, what is the cost of this piece right. in hand quotes? If we are not allowed or we silence the voices of those who who desperately want um, to to love and to to serve those who have been oppressed um, in the generations before it was people of race, um, people of color. Now it's it's um, gender minorities right. and women. If we don't listen to their cries and their very, um, you know, their respectful cries that then I think sometimes become less respectful then guess what happens? Peace is um, maintained, <laughs> but at what cost? It's because they're gone. They're gone. The people that had something to say, are so, they give up and they leave. So the, the majority may not have the same expertise, but if the so-called experts don't listen, mm. the organization falls apart. Mm. And point number 10 kind of leads into this idea of this whole, wait, what just happened? Like some Like the organization falls apart and everybody's acting shocked. Like, man, what's going on here? Well, the fact is, is that it's been going on for years yeah. and they don't listen. And when they don't listen, you get this mass exodus and then everybody's looking at each other like, what happened? Well, what happened was you didn't listen. You thought you were the experts and maybe you are. In I mean, some things. I, I don't know how to govern a worldwide church. Right. I'm not going to say that I do. Right. Okay. Yeah. But we do know what people are worried about in terms of the, the group. And if the minority doesn't listen to the majority about what they're worried about and really address it. The majority doesn't listen to the minority. Did I say it backwards? Yeah, it's okay. okay. Just so I'm that sorry. we are. Yeah, it's okay. If, if, the, if, the, if the elite <laughs> minority doesn't listen to the majority, then the organization falls apart. And that is what Toscana was saying in point number 10 is that the organization won't survive because those who are suppressed or repressed simply will walk out. Let me just circle us back before we close, Nathan, to something that I oftentimes use when I'm, I'm going to go back to couples work because it's kind of nice to go from macro, like the big picture, back to just two people, um, you know, two partners. Yes. And this is something that I just have used over and over and over again. It's an idea of Diana Fosha from um, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, just to give her full credit. Um, and if you guys can imagine um, a circle that has three points on it so there's three little places there's th so in other words imagine that we're all rounding the, this will all of the time and there's three different points on this will that we have to um, healthy relationships have to address all three of these at the top of the will is the idea of attunement we spend some variation of our time in intimate relationships or even in institutional relationships in attunement then there is the inevitable disruption 
If you have two living, breathing, individual human beings, you're going to always have differing opinions, different ideas, different experiences. Disruption. Disruption always happens in every system. What matters next, I think, is the most important thing. The third part of this will is the repair process. It's where we look at the disruption, we talk about the two differing or the multiple differing opinions of those that bring up disruption, that bring up something about what's going on in the system that is not okay. And a repair is made, which is that all parties come to the table and offer their thoughts and feelings and their accountable selves to acknowledge what part of the problem they played in the disruption. And then we move back to attunement. Most of the time, you guys, we don't, um, we don't do one of two of these components of this will. We either, we, we try oftentimes, I think, to stay in attunement, which is sort of this idea that, you know, uh, we try too hard to be peacemakers at the expense of, of um, authenticity. So sometimes we try to avoid the disruption completely, or sometimes we have the disruption and we try to avoid the repair. Everybody goes to bed, we wake up in the morning and awkwardly start doing life together and pretend like nothing happened. But what's going on is a lot is going on inside the individual's bodies. They know things are not okay. They have thoughts, feelings, opinions, struggles, worries, weaknesses, vulnerabilities. But for some reason, when you live in a system where repair is not acceptable, or when repair brings shame, or repair brings marginalization or ostr ostracization. Yeah, good enough. <laughs> when you get ostracized, uh, um, then the whole thing falls apart and people learn, I can't repair because either I lack the ego structure, it's too scary, or the party on the other side of the relationship won't be accountable and they won't have a conversation with me. They won't dignify this relationship by having a dialogue with me. So can you explain real quick the repair? You're, by repair, you don't mean everybody brings their opinions into line and, no. and that they all see things the same. What do you mean by repair? I mean by repair that everyone is allowed to actually flesh out the problem, to have a conversation and come to some place where maybe everybody doesn't disagree, doesn't agree with one another, because it, once again, let's take it to the worldwide organization. Everybody is not always going to see eye to eye. But I do think that especially when we're, from what we're talking about regarding, you know, big issues, you know, social issues and things like that, um, there's such um, an, a, a lack of desire to even hear, mm -hmm. like to sort of stay sort of um, rigidly around uh, sort of these, these rules Good. that there's not even a dialogue. Yeah. And those that are suffering don't get heard because... The, the others use their authority to shut down the conversation completely. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, if I could use an example. Yeah. Um, one of the things the church has tried to do to address the young people is they've created these dialogue meetings. Um, I can't remember what they call them. Like, face-to-face the face yeah, yeah. Face mm -hmm. meetings, right? And I have noticed as I've watched a few of them that very difficult questions are asked. Like, I don't agree with the church's stance on the LGBTQ policies, or mm -hmm. I don't agree with the church not apologizing to people of color for the priesthood ban. And whenever a general authority gets a very difficult question like that, he always turns it around to, you need to have faith, you need to put this, you know, in God's hands. And what I wish would happen is they would say, yeah, that's a really hard question. And I don't know the answer 
to a lot of the things that you're asking me, but I can understand why it's difficult for you. I, you never hear a dialogue like that. No, it's not it, addressed. It's that, evaded. It's evaded or even turned back on the person. Yeah. That if like, you had more, if you had faith. a testimony of the rest restoration of the gospel, you wouldn't have this question, Charlie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so to me, that, to me, that's a lack of repair. Uh, we may not be able to agree on on policies or whatever our, our different views points are, but I think there ought to be an acknowledgement that the issues are tough. Well, and that they and that people suffer by lack of dialogue. And people suffer yes. from the lack of dialogue, and people suffer because they have different points of view, and there has been some oppression. And I think some acknowledgement of those kinds of things could go a long way towards keeping the people, keep, keeping our young people closer to the church, and not feeling they have to choose. Yes between their authenticity and a structure and an organization that refuses to let them have an opinion. Right, right. That's beautifully said. I, I know exactly what you're talking about and how I think probably what, what ends up happening is in cases of this nature, like with the face-to-faces where their, their questions are ultimately not being answered, interestingly, oftentimes, um, I personally think the youth actually make an integrity-based choice to walk away right. because they're, they're, they're legitimate, heartfelt, deep questions are not being looked at. They're not being addressed. There is no dialogue. I mean, it would actually warm my heart to no end for, for us to hear, you know what, this, this question, it hurts us. It hurts you. We've hurt you. We don't know what we we're working it out. We don't know the answers. We're trying our hardest and doing our best, but by golly, this is really painful. Right. We don't understand ourselves. A lot of this. A lot of this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that would, you know, I think you probably find some youth really softening mm. because they'd feel that like, okay, maybe, maybe they're human and they're with us mm -hmm. and they're right. They're like in the struggle with us. But, but I don't think um, we see that quite enough. There is this air of these are the rules. This is how it's going to look. This is the plan of salvation on a silver plate, take it or leave it. And, um, and ultimately, I think it hurts people. It hurts kids. It hurts grownups. It hurts yeah, all of us. Hurts all right? of us. Yeah. So let's. Oh, go ahead. Well, okay. So two quick things. One, number one, I was reading in the gospel topics essays, um, not not the essays, the gospel topics. That's very different, actually, yeah. on common consent. And one of the things that it says, and of course, this is not from the scripture. This is somebody's summary. But it says common consent means that we as a church come together in agreement on a sustaining or a, you know whatever. Um, and I disagree with that. Um, if you read the actual scriptures from the Doctrine and Covenants on common consent, uh, what it says is, is that we're basically asking the church if they agree or not agree, not to come into alignment on our thoughts. So that's kind of one thought I have is that is that common consent was put into the church for a reason, but we're not using it correctly. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, in other words, if... Um... How, how do we all settle into this idea of true common consent if we ultimately, at the end of the day, are not going to agree? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I so, understand. so to me, there's two issues here. Number one is, is that I think the way I read the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord was absolutely putting some checks and balances on things long before uh, it got changed. Uh, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was not a Quorum of Twelve Apostles the way we know it now right. that is this governing body of the church. They were traveling missionaries. And, and priesthood keys actually were held at a much lower level in the, the stake presidency below the prophet and his counselors. It was really in the stake presidencies, which was kind of a more grassroots level. Um, and the law of common consent was put into place to have some checks and balances on the first presidency through grassroots efforts, the, the stake level and lower. 
we have changed it to make the apostles these these kind of in-betweens the, the the first presidency and the more grassroots members um and the, the law of common consent has been changed to say well now we have 15 people that are making policy not three and we don't need your vote anymore or your checks and balances anymore we just want you to fall in line the way I use common consent myself most of the time is like, okay, I may or may not agree with what's going on here, but I will be supportive. I will do my best to be supportive of these decisions that have been made, even though I wasn't really pulled the way I see common consent was supposed to be. So are you saying that in the early church, common consent was used to keep the the first presidency accountable to the voice of the people? Absolutely. Like none of the revelations that Joseph Smith uh, had or introduced to the, well, the Book of Commandments and what later became the Doctrine and Covenants, they all had to run through the members of the church So are before we, they were included. So let me just make sure I'm following you. Are you saying that what this is, the, 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 the bottom line of this is that we want a body, the, the church is a body to be cultivating spiritual gifts enough to where they are as inspired as the leaders so that they are helping the leaders be inspired by their voice of consent or dissent. Wow, that was so beautiful because not only was that correct the way I'm trying to articulate this, but it leads me to the last point. Oh, good. <laughs> which was Toscano's summary. The reason why all of this is important is because of what we, and we've said this many times already, the relationship has to develop between the individual and God. And, and that's really the bottom line, that right? Is, that becomes the bottom line in all of this, is that the individual has to go to God Let me for just, personal revelation. So this is what Paul Toscano says per, himself in the book. Descent is holy because it requires us to be ultimately responsible, not to any earthly power, but to God directly. So what this requires of us, you guys, is incredibly scary and nerve-wracking and anxiety-inducing. And the reason why is because sometimes what we feel to be true is not in line with what the, the general body feels or those in power feels. feels. <laughs> yeah. My grammar's lacking today. It's going to be tricky because sometimes we have to make a choice between what we feel is true that comes straight through that beautiful conduit of the spirit our own personal relationship with our parents in heaven that may feel different than what we're hearing at the pulpit yes and we don't like that i don't like that i wish it was never that way i wish whatever came from the pulpit always gelled with and lined up with exactly the way i felt I had gotten my answers from my heavenly parents. And yet that is, that, that's not the case and it can't be the case because my goodness, I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. So why can't other people get it wrong sometimes too? Mm. And like we said before, revelation has very little, if anything, to do with office or role. Yes. It has to do with being in connection with our divine parents. Any final thoughts on that? Are you looking for something? I, I am because you just brought up a really important point, but um, I don't have it in front of me. So I'm going to paraphrase. <laughs> okay, please do that. <laughs> so yesterday I was actually reading um, the Gospel Topics essay on the manifestos to in polygamy. And one of the things that was mentioned in that essay was a quote from George Q. Cannon 
And I know it's George Q. Cannon, but I'm going to paraphrase the quote. I know what you're going to say. And the quote is <laughs> essentially, the brethren are doing the best they can, but they are not inspired on every minutia of every detail of every decision every day of every week of every year. And that's a really good quote from George Q. Cannon, because that is exactly how I feel about my role as a father where I am in charge of my family, but I'm not inspired on everything I've ever done in my family. But we all are responsible for going to our Heavenly Father, going to our Heavenly Parents, receiving inspiration, and then playing an important part in an organization. And the scriptures clearly say that the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. That's, that's right out of Paul's writings in the New Testament, that the body all has to be there and the body all has to play a part. And anytime the head says to any other body part, I don't need you, there's it's a problem. problem. You know, that reminds me, and this is the way we can kind of close up, Nathan. <laughs> this actually just happened a couple of hours ago. Um, so, okay, let me double back. One of the most, if not the foundational problem that, that has emerged that um, I think sort of all roads lead here is this idea of the infallibility of our leaders. It, it wouldn't be we wouldn't have be having a five part series on the sanctity of dissent if our ability and if we were encouraged to respectfully dissent it wouldn't be this would not be a conversation if we didn't have something baked into our culture from very early in the restoration which i personally believe believe was probably um, made stronger by by the problem of polygamy if we were allowed to have a dissenting voice and to allow these brethren to be messy, complicated, um, confused, to try their hardest and do their best, but to be accountable to the lower bodies of the church, then as things did inevitably get messed up and confused and as, you know, you know, uh, trouble arose because of mistakes made, then we as a body would collaborate and have more compassion on them and they would have more compassion on us and we would be more compassionate with each other as we were sort of all flailing around. The problem that we have is the obsession with being right. Mm -hmm. The obsession with rightness is at the core of most of our problems. And it's interesting that just today in, um, we just had state conference this morning and it opened with, I'm sure, something that has um, been um, encouraged um, by the brethren that no one is allowed to um, video record anything that is said in this meeting. And the reason why I think that has been said is because when someone, I think this kind of comes, don't you think this probably comes from the Brad Wilcox kerfuffle of the, of the winter where he said a whole bunch of things, they got online and it was a big problem, is that um, people are not allowed at um, high levels to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Because if you make a mistake, then all the world falls apart because we're not allowed to make mistakes because we've set this expectation up that they never are wrong. And yet the problem is when you videotape state conferences from all over the world, um, mistakes are being made and said all the time. People are saying things that are not doctrinally pure. They are not necessarily correct. Um, and while we wish they would be, they just aren't going to be. They're trying their hardest. They're doing their best. They're coming from their own, um, you know, their own humanness, their own brokenness, their own misunderstandings of gospel principles. And guess what, you guys? That's got to be okay. <laughs> That's got to be okay. I, I don't. Anything you want to add to that? No, I think okay. that's good. I, you know, so if we could summarize one thing on all yeah. of this, it's that we need to have a personal relationship 
with our heavenly parents so that revelation can flow to us and we can be active participants in an organization, both as people that can compromise mm. and learn to go along with things we don't agree with, but also to be able to have the courage to voice when things need to be changed. And I think something else that I'm encouraging you guys to do, and I'm, I'm scared myself in doing this, so I, I have a lot of love and compassion for your angstiness on this, is that I really want us to have um, the culture in the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints needs to shift away from fear of dissent. If more of us respectfully but firmly dissent from time to time and introduce a change in the culture of the church at a worldwide level, then I, I'm hopeful that it will become more normal for us to not sort of um, quietly stay small and then get um, upset enough to where our testimonies leave us and then we leave the church. If more people, I was actually just, okay, one more thing. I know we're kind of going on and on, but I was just listening to one of my girlfriends this morning. Um, she said that in her stake, she lives in a different state of the United States. In her stake, there is, I'm sure this is an unofficial thing, but I was impressed all the same. There is a faith crisis luncheon every week or every month held by a group of women in her stake. A group of women who have the courage enough to talk about together, to come together and actually commune over their real unscripted, unchurch correlated struggles with their relationship with, with the church. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the thing that I think is um, a little unfortunate about that is I wish that Relief Society on a Sunday would be wel would welcome voices of true concern. And I think some Relief Societies probably do that better than others. But we wanna have a culture where we can show up and actually wrestle with these things with each other, with our leaders, and with our general leadership so that this can become more of a true dialogue, like a family that allows all parts, all experiences, and that respectfully is able to be in dialogue so that we together can come um, to a knowledge of what is good, true, and right, or at least the, the closest approximation to, to that which is possible in our, in our you know, frail humanness. So we close this Descent series out, you guys. So glad to have you here with us. Um, I'm hopeful that if and when you feel the courage to share this, you will do so. And if not, I know there are a few of you who have even made reviews that have said, you know what, I love your podcast. I can't share it. It's too, I'm, so, I'm still too scared. I understand you. I see you. I get you. And I'm appreciative that you're here and that hopefully this is growing your soul. You're feeling seen and known. You're feeling closer to God as you listen to this. You're not feeling like you're crazy. And if you feel too, um, I, would, I would really, really encourage you to leave a, a, a positive review and a rating and let other people know that this is something that is helping you guys. So thanks for being with us and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.